everybody. Uh, welcome to worship. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. If you go about three-fourths through your Bible, you're going to land in one of the four Gospels, most likely. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then keep turning to the right. You're going to look through Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. And while you are turning there, we have uh, just started, last week we started a brand new series entitled Ephesus, Ancient Solutions for Modern Challenges. And we're walking through the book of Ephesians line by line. And uh, many consider the book of Ephesians to be the most theologically rich, concise book of doctrine. It is a, a survival guide for Christians onto not, not just how to survive, but, but how to thrive in the midst of a culture and a context that is vehemently opposed to the Christian faith. Sound familiar? And one of the things that I absolutely love about this story is that Paul was originally writing to a group of theologically illiterate, young baby Christians. The vast majority of them have been following Jesus for no more than a couple of months. And the, the experienced Christians have been following Jesus for no more than two years. And they have just been placed in the most hostile context to the Christian message. I shared with you last week that Ephesus is modern-day southeast Turkey. It was a port city in the empire of Rome, a very significant city for commerce and buying and selling, for leisure, for travel. And so there's about half a million people, and even in the first century, who lived in this enormous city. And if you were a part of the Roman Empire, in all likelihood, you had visited Ephesus at least once in your life. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to see our uh, sermon on that last week, I encourage you to watch that at a later time. But one of the things that uh, we saw was uh, an interpretation of what the Temple of Artemis possibly looked like. It was considered to be one of the seven ancient um, wonders of the world, this monstrosity of a temple that had 127 pillars, each weighing 15 tons or 30,000 pounds, this incredible temple that people would go into and they would pay homage to the Greek goddess Artemis. But one of the things I didn't mention last week is that there were actually more than 50 temples in Ephesus, and the Ephesians worshipped hundreds upon hundreds of different gods and goddesses. And the reason why the Ephesians were so vehemently opposed to the Christian faith wasn't because it was a new religion. They embraced new religions. The reason why they were opposed is because Christianity professed to, to believe in the one true God. Christians refused to put those coexist bumper stickers on the back of their cars. And for that reason, the Ephesians despised them. They had no interest in the Christian movement. In fact, one thing that I find quite interesting is if you look at extra-biblical resources, uh, uh, historical documents that were written in the first century context, Christians were often called atheists, anti 
theists. Uh, they were anti-gods. And the reason being is because they only believed in one God, and that was something they just couldn't comprehend in their mind. And so that's where that term was actually originated. It was addressed toward Christians. What, I just find that kind of interesting, fascinating. Um, so I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, the first two verses again to you. I did it last week, but I want to read it again. And this time, I want you to be thinking about that original context, where Christians are an environment where everyone else around them believes in a number of different gods, but they believe in the one true God, Jesus Christ. And Paul makes no mistake right out of the gate when he says this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, not gods, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Six times in one sentence, in the first two verses, he says, this is what we believe in a nutshell. Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the one true God. It would only take two verses... <laughs> One sentence for the vast majority of the Ephesians to take this letter and to say, this is garbage, and to throw it in the trash. But Jesus says, I want to fill in the gaps for you about who this Jesus is and why it matters for your life and for mine. And the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, how do we not only survive, but how do we thrive in the midst of a culture and a context that is opposed to the concept of monotheism, the belief in one God, where even today uh, it, it is not really a, an idea that our culture and context is very fond of. And so how do we thrive in the midst of a context very similar to first century Ephesus. And so right off the bat, the Apostle Paul wants to provide two foundational truths, two doctrines that will forever change our life if we start following Jesus. So if your Bibles are open, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to read verse 3. Verse 3 starts it off saying this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, the first doctrine right off the bat that Paul wants these new baby Christians to understand is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. Sufficiency, what, what does that mean? It means in Jesus, you have everything that you need, spiritually speaking. Everything that you need. In fact, you, you might uh, think, uh, for example, of what Jesus said on the cross. Three words, the last three words that he said. He said, it is what? Finished. It's finished. And what does that mean? It means that there was a sin debt that we owed on our invoice, on, on our bill. And Jesus took that sin debt and he took that stamp and he stamped it and it said, paid in full. It is done. Everything is paid for on account of what Christ has done. And Paul says, before I tell you anything else, here's what you need to know, dear Christian. Christ has paid the sin debt for you so that you can be set free. And we got to put first things first here. And if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, you must know this. 
that on account of our sin, we have been separated from God. God said, follow me in obedience. We said, I want to chart out my own path. Ever since the dawn of time, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, we have had a sin debt ever since then, and we needed someone to stand in the gap for us on account of our sin and to pay for that debt. And Paul says, that person is Jesus. And the price that he paid is sufficient for all of our sins. You know, you, you might think, for example, uh, especially in this valley, you might uh, be a parent of adult children and they want to buy a house. And as you know, houses around here are like a million dollars and it's really hard to get that down payment. And so you might be a benevolent parent who says, all right, kids, I'm going to give you the, the 15% or the 20% on the down payment just to get you started. But after that, you're on your own. You got to start paying those monthly increments so that you can own your home one day. But that isn't what the gospel is saying. Jesus didn't pay the down payment. He paid for everything on the front end. And on account of that, we can stand before God in glory and he will see the perfection of Jesus in you and in me. And before anything else, Paul wants that to be abundantly clear. And this would be a new message not only for the Gentiles, uh, who they referred to as pagans, but this would be a new message for Jews as well. If you turn back to the Old Testament, you will see that there were five different offerings that the Jewish community, the people of Israel, would give to the Lord. One of them was a sin offering. And so they would take a, a ram or a goat or a pigeon or a turtle dove or a sheep and they would sacrifice, the, sacrifice this animal on the altar and the blood would spill out and it would be a sin offering unto the Lord. And the wrath of God would be appeased on account of the sin offering that they had placed. But one of the things that the people of Israel knew is that these sacrifices did nothing to affect the principal payment that we needed to pay for our sin debt. It only paid the interest, which means no matter how many sin offerings they proposed to God, no matter how many times they constructed altars and sacrificed animals, it would do nothing to appease the ultimate wrath of God so that they could be reconciled with him. And it's not until Jesus comes do we recognize that his payment is sufficient for all of our sins. Right off the bat, the very first verse, Jesus, through Paul, wants to make this abundantly clear. Christ's death is sufficient for you. But the second doctrine that we find is in verse 4. It says this, for he chose us, circle, highlight, underline, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And the second doctrine that we have to understand is our election in Christ. Our election. Now, if, if you are familiar with the Christian faith and, and you have uh, made your way around a variety of different churches, you know that uh, this word, election, is met with some heat, isn't it? If you've ever had an opportunity to have conversations with uh, some of your Anabaptist friends who believe in the doctrine of free will and you're a good reform person and you believe in the doctrine of election, you start having arguments and you say, well, which one is it and what does this look like and, and doesn't the doctrine of election mitigate my free will and how do those things work out together or, or even a really visceral question, why? Do I have to believe that God would choose some and not others? 
I can't believe in a God like that. And so all of these questions are swirling in our mind when it comes to this doctrine, all of which are important questions to ask. But what I want to propose to you today is that sometimes when we review the doctrine of election, we miss the forest for the trees. That there is something foundational that Paul wants us to understand that we often overlook, both in the Reformed camp and in the Anabaptist tradition. And there's something that both sides need to learn through Ephesians chapter 1. So there's two ultimate questions that I want to propose to you that are the most significant questions that we have to ask. Number one, what does Scripture actually say, even if we don't understand it, about the doctrine of election and the doctrine of free will? And then number two, why does God want us to know them? Why is it so important for us to come to terms with the doctrine of election? And what does he want us to do with it? So look again at verse 4. It says this, God chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now, just consider something. This means that even before the world was established, even before the dawn of time, God knew you, he knew your name, and he placed his love upon you. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing has ever dawned on God? that nothing surprises him, that God in his sovereignty, meaning he knows all things, he knew you before you were even a twinkle in your father's eye. That's what scripture says. He has always known you, and before you made any decision at all, he has placed his love upon you. And perhaps you you might have an objection. You might say, okay, I I get that, that God chose me before the dawn of time, but, but maybe, just maybe, God knew ahead of time that I would choose him and, and he chose me back. Maybe he knew that, that Justin would, would choose to be more faithful than most, right? We all know that God grades on a curve, and, and so he was going to be one of the 10% most faithful people. And on account of that, that's why he chose me to be a Christian, or that's why he chose you to be a Christian. But listen, that, that's not what Scripture says. We recognize, if, if we have an understanding of what Ephesians 1 and many other passages of Scripture say, it is that God is the primary actor of faith in our life. God, I, I put it this way, God is the first actor in our story of faith. And so then you might ask this question, you might say, okay, why did, why did God choose me and, and not someone else? Did he see that I was going to be a good Christian? Did he see that I was going to be a great life group leader? Did he see that I was going to be um, a God-centered, Christian, excellent business person who was going to bring shalom into the world? That I was going to be a good, godly parent, and on account of that, he chose me? No. <laughs> no. And perhaps it's, it's helpful to know that these exact same questions were asked by the people of Israel in the Old Testament. I want you to uh, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. I'm also going to have it up on the screen. Two questions that the people of Israel also asked. The first question was this. It was, maybe God chose us as the people of Israel because we were big and powerful and strong and obedient. And God says this. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. For you are the the fewest 
of all people. And then the people of Israel say, oh, okay, well, maybe God chose us because we were obedient and we were faithful. And all the other nations, they were extra disobedient. And for that reason, God chose us. And once again, God corrects them. And he says this, I find this one humorous. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are <laughs> a stiff-necked people. I've often grown tired of y'all. And still, you have to recognize, I have chosen you. Not because you are lovely, but because, precisely, I have chosen to love you. Now, this is one of those fourth-dimensional truths that is really, really difficult for us to understand. It conjures up a variety of different questions. But we must know it wasn't on account of our, our good merit. It wasn't on account of our good deeds. It, and it certainly wasn't on account of our good heart. God does not grade on a curve. And all that we know from what Scripture says is the reason why God chose you is simply because he chose you. He set his love upon you. In fact, that's where Paul continues. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 says this, In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Why? In accordance with his pleasure and his goodwill. In accordance with his pleasure and his goodwill. So I had the opportunity a couple years ago to uh, listen to a sermon from pastor and author J.D. Greer, and he was talking about the doctrine of predestination. And uh, he used an image that's always uh, stood with me, and I wanted to share it with you. He gave the, the image of that hit TV show, The Voice. Do you remember that show? Uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, there would be singers who would come out on the stage, and then um, all of the captains, they would be sitting in a chair, but they wouldn't be able to look at the singer. And the reason why they would do that is they wanted all subjectivity to go out the window, that they wouldn't pick them because they thought they were sellable or because they were handsome or beautiful, but it was only based on the voice. Well, J.D. Greer said that when we understand the doctrine of election, here's what happens. You walk out on that stage, but before you start to sing, God pushes the button and says, I choose you. Before we've done anything at all, before we were a twinkle in our Father's eye, before the dawn of time, God says, I chose you. And so your next question might be, okay, you know, I, I believe in the, in the doctrine of election, but doesn't that violate my free will? I mean, where does free will come into play in this? Doesn't it violate it? And my answer to you would be no. No, it doesn't. What we see here is that the doctrine of election is performed in concert with our free will. Now, what does that look like? How, how does that happen? I want to share two passages of Scripture with you. The first one, you can look at the, the broader context later, but it's Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. Jesus says this, Come, let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes, that is to be with Jesus, take the free gift of the water of life. And another passage that I find really helpful is John chapter 6, verse 44, when Jesus says, No one comes to the Father 
No one comes to me unless the Father draws them. And that word draw is the Greek word hakuo. And the image that you should have in your mind is if, let's say, you were out in the desert for 40 days and you hadn't eaten anything and you were to the point of death. If you don't eat anything within the next couple of hours, you are going to die. And there is a beautiful meal that is laid out before you and is drawing you in. And what we learn in Scripture is that even if Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, if it were not for the working of the Holy Spirit, none of us would choose him. All of us, 100% from the first century until now and for the rest of eternity, the entire human race would all spit on the cross and say, I don't need you, Jesus. And so one of the, the foundational truths of the gospel is that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's Hebrews Chapter 12, it says this, Let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the founder of our faith, meaning he is the one who established it, he is the primary actor in it, and he is the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who is working it to completion so that even after we follow Jesus, he is the one who is prompting us to continue to follow him, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Let me ask you a question. What's the joy? What was the joy that was set before him? And the author of Hebrews makes this abundantly clear. The joy that was set before Jesus was you. It was me. See, I'm sure that while Jesus was on the cross, arms stretched out on the cross, he had fleeting moments of snapping his fingers, which would cause the entire angelic assembly to come down and to free him from his suffering. But he stayed why did he stay? Because the joy that was set before him. Because, Scripture says, Jesus was thinking about me. He was thinking about you. And it was precisely because of your face and mine that he chose to stay on that cross, scorning its shame so that you and I could be set free. And that's what Paul says in this text too. Let me read verses 5 through 11. It says this, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. And that word sonship is intentional. It's not just because it's a patriarchal society. Paul is saying something absolutely remarkable, especially in a first century context in which women had no rights. He says, all y'all, men and women, you are given sonship, which means you are given the credit that only typically is given to sons, only given to men, that you have the inheritance that comes with walking with God. He's saying whether you're a man or you're a woman, you are given sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us 
with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out all things in conformity with the purpose of his will. See, when people adopt children, there's often a time, a moment, when they're peering through that nursery window or they see their adopted child for the very first time, that their heart wells up with joy for this child that they've never even met. That in that moment, they have such a great love for them, even though this child hasn't done anything to reciprocate that love to them as parents. And remarkably, the Apostle Paul uses this image of adoption to help us understand what God does to us. He says, before you have done anything at all, you didn't contribute to the the betterment of the family. You didn't help the family business. You didn't help the estate. There's nothing that you did. But when I laid my eyes on you, before you've done anything at all, I placed my love on you. And when we think about this concept of adoption, for for those of us especially who have adopted children, I think of the words of Jesus. For those of us who are evil parents, meaning we're we're imperfect parents, if, if we can have that kind of love, how much more do you think your heavenly Father loves you? And so here's a foundational truth that we learn from the Apostle Paul and elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus is both the author of our faith and he is the perfecter of our faith. Look again to verse 12. This is where he closes this off, verses 12 to 14. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is the one who brings about change in our heart. He is the one who inspires us to follow Jesus in obedience and love. It is only because of the working of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit that we choose to follow him in obedience. And so, dear Christian, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you have to know this. You are chosen by God. And even though the doctrine of election and predestination are, are fourth-dimensional truths that are so difficult for us to understand, I promise you, when you take a moment to, to marinate in this gospel truth, it will cause your heart to sing. 
because maybe, just maybe, there will come a moment in your life, maybe it's when you're on your deathbed, that you would start to think to yourself, even if you're a follower of Jesus, you'll begin to wonder, have I done enough? Was I moralistic enough? Was I good enough? Did I make enough contributions to the poor? Did, did I do the right things? Was I a faithful husband or wife? Did, was I faithful to my children? Was I faithful in my work? Was I faithful with my time? And all those questions could cause you to, to, to wonder if you are truly saved. But what this doctrine proposes to us is that Jesus is the driving actor here. He is the one who can give you a deep-rooted assurance that your salvation is as good as done. What a source of hope and encouragement, not only for these baby Christians 2,000 years ago, but also for you and for me. And so knowing that we are chosen by God, I want to propose to you that there's four things that we get to have, and the fourth one might be the most shocking of all. But the first thing that we can have is assurance that God will ultimately finish what he started. That he will finish what he started because salvation is start to finish the work of Jesus. Consider for a moment that, that there might be times in your life where you have been so discouraged Perhaps even right now, as you are watching this service, you are in that place. You are in a deep, dark valley. Perhaps it's a recent diagnosis, or the loss of a loved one, or a feeling of being totally overwhelmed by the circumstances of your life. Or maybe, just maybe, you even have this fleeting thought where you're discouraged on account of your spiritual walk with Jesus and, and you know that some things need to change and, and that you feel like you, you haven't been living up to the standard of God and so you're discouraged in that way. And, and perhaps that inspires this question, God, why me? Why me? And in that moment, we can be reminded that before the death of Christ, we were dead to our sin. We weren't dying. We were dead. There was, there was nothing that we could do, but on account of the work of Jesus, we were set free. So consider this. If God chose you before the dawn of time, before you had done anything at all, do you really think that God's going to give up on you now? Would he start seeing fruit in your life? Or perhaps I can say it to you this way. Has it ever dawned on you that God is even more interested in your salvation than you are? That he is even more motivated for you to be saved than you are? That he is so determined to continue to, to complete that good work in you that he has ultimately started? My hope for, for you is that you can have this deep-rooted assurance that God will finish what he started. You think, for example, of John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He's talking about you, and he's talking about me. And he's talking about the fact that he will never give up on those that he loves. And so, dear Christian, have the assurance and knowing that Jesus will finish what he has started. But here's the second thing that we can have. We can have hope. 
because we know how the story ends. You and I can bravely face whatever trials come our way because we know ultimately how it ends. And so there might be moments in our life where we question the word of God, we question the will of God, we question the circumstances of our life. We might even say, God, why have you allowed these things to happen in my life? This sickness, this diagnosis, this this change. God, why would you let this happen? I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to be obedient to you. But what Paul says is that we can have hope in knowing how the story ends. We don't know all the things that are going to happen in between, but we know how the story ends. I want to share a video with you. And before we watch this video, here's a couple things you need to know. Uh, It's a basketball game. It's uh, Raptors versus 76ers. And I want you to think about what is going to happen in this four-second video, thinking that the Raptors represent your life, and what hope ultimately is, is the knowledge ahead of time that this shot that's about to go off is going to go in. And how sweet it is knowing on the front end, even before this happens, that this ball is going to go in the net. And so even though this whole crowd of people that are in the Air Canada Centre, 22,000 strong and another 8,000 outside, that all these people who have gathered together, they don't know how the story is going to end. And so they're on pins and needles. They're pitting out. They're sweating. They're scared. You can know on the front end that this ball is going to go in. Take a look. You've got to be aware of the inbounder here if you're Philly. It's off to Leonard, defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? I love that video. See, to a vastly more significant degree, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that that we have the sure and certain hope of knowing how our story ends, that Jesus ultimately is victorious, and that he will make all things new, and that there's even an understanding that the broken things in our life, God will work backwards to redeem all of those things and to turn them into memorials of his grace. And in that way, we will even rejoice in our sufferings. Do you know what's so interesting about this story? Do you know where Paul is when he is writing his letter to the church in Ephesus? He's in prison in Rome. And he's writing this encouragement. He's saying, in the midst of the circumstances you, you face, you can have hope. You can hold firm. And they're thinking to themselves, you're in some dark, dingy cell, rotting away. And you can still have that perspective. Why? Because Paul know how the, knows how the story ends. And because we do too, we can have hope regardless of what happens in our life. And thirdly, we can have the riches of God's inheritance. 
I shared this with you already, but that, con that word sonship is so significant because we recognize that what is being highlighted here is that we ultimately receive an inheritance. The Apostle Paul elsewhere in Scripture, in the book of 1 Corinthians, says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. That all the rights and privileges that are established for the second person of the Trinity, namely Jesus Christ, are also granted and credited to you and to me on account of being a part of God's family. I mean, how mind-bending of an idea is that? That we have the same inheritance as Jesus. Like, can you even have the, the courage, the audacity to believe that? That's what Scripture says. And fourth and finally... What I really want us to take some time to consider is that we can have boldness for evangelism. Boldness for evangelism. See, some of us might think, well, you know, come on, Justin, if God has already chosen people before the dawn of time, then, then why does he need me to evangelize? You know, what, what's the term that uh, many of us were born and raised with? Uh, the frozen chosen. Have you heard about that before? Right, So uh, I'm chosen by God, and so everything's taken care of, and I don't need to worry about it because God's sovereign on his throne, and so why, why do we even need to evangelize? And what I want to propose to you is that that is a, a mistake for us to have that type of interpretation. In fact, I would go as far to say it is disobedience for us to have that particular view. See, Paul knew that he was determined and he understood on the front end that on account of the work of the Holy Spirit, God would draw people to himself. I shared with you last week, uh, Acts chapter 19, the story about Tyrannus. This man who met with Paul for three straight months every single day in the synagogue and he fought with Paul about the gospel. And he was hardened. His heart was vehemently opposed to God. And yet for 90 days, every single day, he would argue with Paul until God took hold of his heart and he softened his heart and he started following Jesus. And then Tyrannus said, hey, I got a theater that holds 25,000 people. Why don't we start sharing the love of Jesus there? And he's part of the gospel story. See, we don't know what God is doing. Our calling is to be faithful to him. So here's what I want to propose to you. Here's what I want us to see. The doctrine of election always, always, always is in concert with the understanding that we need to have boldness for evangelism. That Paul always says when he brings up election, he says God has chosen you and he has appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. What's the fruit? That people would come to know Jesus. You see, you are blessed to be a blessing. You have been adopted by God so that you can bring others into the family of God. You have been predestined. You are elected by God so that you can do the good work of bringing shalom in the world so others can experience that shalom too. It is always for the purpose of evangelism. And so, listen, it is blatant disobedience for us to say one of two things. The first thing we could say is, well, I believe in the doctrine of election, and on account of that, God's got it all taken care of. Why evangelize? That's disobedience. But on the other side, we could say, well, I don't believe in the doctrine of election. It's just free will, and suddenly we are motivated to evangelize because we need other people to make that choice. 
And so that's a misinterpretation of Scripture, too. So to both sides, we have to say, we have to have a firm grasp of the doctrine of election, which stipulates this. When we understand this, we can have the assurance that God will finish what he started in you. We can have the hope in knowing the final score. We can have the riches of God's shalom in our life. And we can have the boldness to begin sharing the good news of the gospel with those who don't yet know it. See, John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, or Luke chapter 3, verse 8, makes an incredible statement when he's having a conversation with God-fearing Jews. And many of them, kind of like on the reform camp, said, hey, we are the people of God. We are heirs of Abraham. And so why do we need to talk about all this evangelism stuff? And John the Baptist says this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. Everything is set. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Do you see what he's saying? We have misconstrued the doctrine of election to try to be some sort of theological debate as to who's in and who's out. And Paul says, you goofs, that's not what it's about. Ultimately, what the doctrine of election is about is in recognition that God has chosen me before the dawn of time so that I would be willing to share the good news to say, I am a child of God. I have the inheritance with God, and I have a longing and a desire for others to know the hope that I have found. That is the essence of election. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that as God does a good work in your life, especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that as God humbles your heart, he softens your heart of stone into a heart of flesh, that you would have the motivation, that you would have the boldness to share the good news with those who don't yet know it that we wouldn't turn this into some sort of theological debate, that, but that we would get down on our knees in repentance to seek to share it with a lost world that desperately needs to hear it. And so to that end, people of God, let me pray for you, let me pray for us, that we could be motivated to do exactly that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us the courage of our convictions that we would have a sure and certain knowledge that you have paid for our debt. That before the dawn of time, you have chosen us and appointed us for a particular task to share the good news of the gospel. And perhaps some of us who are listening today are kind of peering in from the outside, wondering who this Jesus person is. And I ask, Lord, that you would take hold of their hearts like you did with Tyrannus, and that they would see you in a new light, and that they would bow down and worship you too, and that they would become part of the children of God, motivated to share this good news with others. Lord, make us a church that is devoted to evangelism, knowing that there is no greater task. To this end, we ask that you would go before us, In the name of Jesus, 
who is the author and the perfecter of our faith.